Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. Everyone in our industry is facing massive disruption. And so this season, I've been speaking with game-changing leaders in our industry and adjacent to it who respond to disruption by becoming disruptors themselves. On today's show, I speak with Granville Martin. He's the Director of U.S. Policy and Outreach for the Value Reporting Foundation. You all may know this um, as the the group SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. They recently merged. Um, He has experience in a sustainability sector now directly, um, and he's also served in previous roles for the Society for Corporate Governance and J.P. Morgan Chase, where I met him many moons ago. Uh, Granville has such a unique perspective from banking to now this ENGO world. And we're going to talk about ESG, SEC disclosures, and I know you're not going to want to miss it. So to learn more about the Energy Thinks podcast and our work at Adamantine, check out our website, energythinks.com. Now, I hope you enjoy my conversation with game-changing leader, Granville Martin. Granville Martin, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Thank you for having me, Tisha. So you have a really unique seat, and we first met when you were working in banking uh, that supported and interfaced with the oil and gas industry. So I think that you might have some unique perspective on what the most important factors oil and gas companies probably aren't considering right now when they're carrying out their ESG strategies. What do you think our listeners might be missing that they should be paying attention to? Thank you for having me, Tisha. I think the biggest issue that companies, and some are, are missing right now is the really large and growing opportunity to compete on carbon intensity. And I mean, carbon intensity of production, which uh, would uh, be characterized as scope one emissions. You can see the opportunity with the rise of carbon neutral LNG cargoes, certified or responsibly sourced gas uh, with transactions coming out of the Haynesville and the Marcellus. So you can see the beginnings, really more than the beginnings of a marketplace where institutional buyers of natural gas are looking for ways to uh, reduce the climate impact of the use of that gas. And uh, I think that's going to become substantially more widespread. And I think it plays into one of the enormous strengths of the oil and gas industry. And that's its uh, uh, competitive spirit and its technological prowess. You know, when I was covering uh, a lot of oil and gas companies, you know, towards the beginning of the fracking revolution, the amount of uh, technological ferment and innovation that you saw among companies was uh, remarkable. And uh, much of the technology that is required to abate fugitive methane and to make production more uh, or less carbon intensive, it's really a matter of uh, will and financial resources and, uh, and you know, te- technical prowess, uh, all of which the industry has. So I think that is one enormous opportunity for the uh, industry and can form a key part of uh, company ESG plans and message. 
I think that's such a great take uh, that you provided for us. Instead of thinking about some of these ESG strategies and disclosures as a, as a reactionary or bureaucratic in nature, you're actually offering a framing that I think is very appealing to oil and gas um, leaders, which is compete to be the best, find your efficiencies, find your, um, your actually your market-based solutions to, to being better. So that's, that's a really interesting perspective. And, and certainly we also at Adam and Tina are seeing so much interest in these ideas of being able to articulate the carbon intensity of your um, oil and your gas. So I think I think you're on to something really important there. One of the p- pivoting a little bit to some incoming expectations, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC has very clearly foreshadowed that there's going to be some kind of financial climate disclosure regulations. I just wrote about it in a recent both true post that I I made. And I suggest that companies shouldn't be thinking about this as a another bureaucratic hoop, you know, another set of forms they have to fill out, but more as an opportunity to actually get out and compete directly and tell their story about how they're reducing emissions. What do you think is coming, Granville? And uh, how do you think companies should be preparing? Yeah, it's a, uh, I think, a super important question. Uh, I agree with you. The SEC is going to act. It looks like uh, sometime in the first quarter of next year when we'll see a a proposed rule. I, I think it's quite likely that a proposal, among other things, is going to require companies to disclose certainly their scope one and scope two emissions. And I think for oil and gas companies and midstream in particular, you know, scope one emissions are going to matter substantially. So you're going to, that, that's going to be a story that company is going to be required to tell, which I think uh, is, you know, uh, correlates with what I was and connects with what I was saying earlier about the opportunity to compete on carbon intensity, because much of this data is likely to be coming out and required to be disclosed. And I think it's uh, for a variety of reasons, which we can talk about very much in the interests of companies uh, to demonstrate that A, they can uh, measure their emissions and B, that they're declining over time. So I think scope one and scope two are going to be important. Another aspect of preparing for this uh, forthcoming rule is sort of you know standard operating procedure governance. What's your data governance? Does your board have proper oversight? And is it structured properly? To provide oversight of climate risks. Uh, these are, you know, I think sort of the blocking and tackling of governance applied to climate change and emissions management. But companies are going to need to just take a look at what their governance processes are, what their data, uh, data collection and data governance processes are, mm-hmm. and really make sure that they've got the kinds of controls and procedures in place. They're going to give them the confidence to provide mandated disclosure to the SEC. On a related note, uh, the SEC sent a, uh, a sample comment letter to, I don't know how many companies, I don't think it was disclosed, but dozens of companies asking about their climate disclosures. And this came from the Division of Corporation of Finance about three weeks ago. I think it's likely that that kind of focus uh, from the Division of Corporation Finance, you know, reviewing company disclosures around climate and other ESG matters uh, is likely to continue. So companies will definitely want to prepare for a uh, somewhat more rigorous environment and where their uh, disclosures uh, do get reviewed and, and potentially commented upon. 
Really interesting. I had not thought of this idea of uh, governance of data, which of course makes a lot of sense when you start translating these climate disclosures into the context of financial reporting. We are just starting to see a lot of the smaller uh, oil and gas companies, EMP, midstream, starting to have ESG committees at the board level. Do you think that that kind of data governance is going to come out of the ESG committees or even out of the finance committees? Or do you have any opinions about what good governance is going to look like and the kind of conversations boards should be having about this new role of oversight of ESG data as part of a financial disclosure? It is really a central question, uh, Tisha. You know, even among oil and gas companies, I think the answer depends. It it certainly depends across industries, but even within industries, you know, I think you have to look and see how a board is currently structured and figure out Uh, whether or not you need a standalone committee. Now, lots of oil and gas companies, you know, already have EHS committees or EHS oversight baked into a risk committee. So, you know, I don't think there is a single um, best answer to that. But once you get smart people, and there are a lot of smart people in the oil and gas business, you know, at the board and senior management level to ask themselves these questions, you're, they're going to come up with, you know, a whole, I, I think, a variety of appropriate uh, answers. I, I think as, as importantly as the, the governance structure questions are is sort of what's that boardroom atmosphere like mm. uh, and whether or not some, some questions that probably weren't asked very frequently in the past are going to need to be asked more frequently now. And do you have a board where that kind of uh, exploration, pardon the pun, you know, is encouraged? Because I do think that there's some governance and some intellectual changes that are going to need to happen for companies to really seize the opportunity that's in front of them. Such a great point that we're not just talking about the analysis and the data of disclosure, but we are talking fundamentally about a paradigm shift that has to be reflected in a culture shift within companies where these questions about climate risk, about emissions reductions, about even operational strategy when we start talking about uh, decarbonizing scope two and scope three. This is a big cultural shift you're hinting at um, that we've been advising companies to get ahead of that these these are not changes that can happen in a reactionary mode, but really in a looking for the opportunity, which you alluded to. I, I really appreciate that, Granville. Um, well, can I make me, one other point right just, there, Tisha? Of course, yeah, mm-hmm. please. You know, if you look at the existing and plausible government policies that have been proposed to address climate change, oil and gas, even under the most rigorous plausible scenario, oil and gas you know, has a secure place in the energy mix for an extended period of time, certainly longer than most planning horizons are. So this is not an, and, and I know that for, for some quarters that are very fearful of, of the climate science, then what I just said is not welcome. But I think it's absolutely the case. I mean, it's you look at IEA projections, you look at projections out of the big uh, investment banks, projections from uh, climate scientists themselves. And it is almost impossible to foresee a future where oil and gas are not a meaningful part of the global energy mix for decades yet. And so in that context, competing on carbon intensity, I think, is makes A, enormous sense, but B, ought to make a lot of folks in the oil and gas business a little bit more comfortable that this is not, we are not talking about a uh, an imminent 
drawdown in the use of of these commodities. In fact, as you can see in places like Europe, uh, some of the issues that are occurring in Asia, that the need for you know responsibly sourced fossil fuel is here now, and it's going to uh, be only more intense in the future. I really appreciate that perspective because so much of the of seizing the opportunity that's going to come from these analyses and disclosures related to climate are going to require that companies really embrace the idea that the oil and gas industry has a, a key role to play in the energy mix, but also a key role in decarbonizing the energy mix, which takes us from less from a reactionary stance into more of a a proactive stance. How can how can we play to win in a decarbonizing energy system? So let me ask you, I, I didn't tell you to bring your crystal ball to this podcast interview, but I'm wondering my read on the SEC comments that were received and, and the way they've been signaling their likely rule coming forward is that they're not going to take on scope three right now. It's it's too complex, has too many overlaps throughout the energy system. Do you have any sense about what's coming? And for our audience, scope three is the other emissions, including the emissions from products. So, for example, an oil producer would be responsible in some way for their end-use products, um, the emissions from their end-use products. What are your thoughts, Granville, on where we're where we're going in scope three, and how companies might be thinking about their positioning on that topic? You know, I, I agree with you uh, that scope three is a, um, a somewhat vexing issue, not just for the SEC, but others beyond regulators. I forget exactly what the metric is, but, you know, the vast majority of emissions associated with a barrel of oil come at the point of combustion. You know, and, and in that in that vein, I don't know that, you know, a, a requirement to report scope three ultimately is going to be the kind of information that's going to allow companies to compete on carbon intensity because you know what happens at the burner tip you know or in an internal combustion engine is you know really beyond the scope of what oil and gas companies are capable of managing so i agree with you that it is a vexing uh, issue for the sec and i really don't have a i don't want to make a prediction on that one because i'm just going to turn out to be wrong but uh it is certainly something the regulators around the world are considering including the european commission with respect to disclosure by companies in the european union and as a digression the corporate sustainability reporting directive the csrd which is currently being negotiated between the european parliament European Commission and member states, it could very well require uh, scope three emission disclosure. Mm. And I know there's plenty of onshore North America companies that aren't going to be captured by uh, that EU reporting requirement. But for some of the exporters, uh, they may well be captured by it. So it is it is relevant. And it is something that companies, as they're thinking through what kind of data collection that they need, that they ought to factor in scope three and begin to look at if I was required to report this, what would it take? Uh, and I think the good news for a lot of oil and gas companies is that calculating their scope three emissions is probably not as complex as, say, a, a multi-line, multi-line retailer mm. uh, you know, has thousands of products that they sell. Mm. So in, in a way, and I know this is probably not all that welcome, scope three as an analytical matter and a collection matter is probably much less daunting to some oil and gas companies than it is to other types of companies. That's really interesting. And um, I'm glad you brought 
the influence of developments in Europe, because certainly up and down the value chain in the U.S. and Canada, we see a a tremendous interest in what's going to happen in Europe, because for natural gas at a minimum, exports uh, maybe end up being a big driver of what uh, producers and midstream companies uh, and exporters have to do in the U.S. So So that's a great point that I think we'll all be thinking about what's happening in Europe, even if the time for it to be adopted in the U.S. is significant to never, companies are going to have to consider what's happening in Europe. Okay. I'd love to stay on scope three all day, but then we'll probably lose our listeners. So I'm I'm going to move on to talk about something that um, we haven't been touching on on this podcast. And I'd love your perspective because of your uh, background in finance and the industry for so long. We know investors are putting significant pressures on companies for for ESGs, but what's happening in the banking environment? Does it change the cost of capital for oil and gas companies, or do you think it will, depending on how they're performing in these kind of likely disclosure environments? You know, it's it's so compl- it's complicated. You know, it depends, I think, in significant part on what kind of financing we're talking about. I spent a fair amount of time around reserve-based lending. You know, a lot of the focus on lending, uh, I think, is likely to play out with, you know, greater, more rigorous due diligence on behalf of the banks um, mm. and asking for more information. I do think this is this goes back to a, a, the issue of how do you manage a fugitive methane. I'm just putting on my hat trying to think about how I thought about things years ago, and you know talking to a company that was that had a very strong uh, operational grasp on uh, environmental management issues. That was just easier to get comfortable, and I think that's only more mm-hmm. uh, you know questions about environmental management. And of course, something like RBL is is repaid based on operations and production, you know, to the extent that a company is doing a a demonstrably solid job of managing those kinds of risks. I think that, you know, lenders are going to, are going to feel a lot better about it. The, you know, the, the, the possibility of some sort of interruption, they would somehow impair uh, that credit is is significantly reduced. You know, you see, you know, for companies that are raising debt and equity, you know, these concerns about climate intensity or climate friendliness, you know, they increasingly matter. You know, you, you see plenty of uh, sustainability linked instruments, green bonds that are being oversubscribed in some cases. Although I, I recently read that so the, that the uh, that the benefit to issuers uh, was actually going down a little bit. But nonetheless, you know, selling equity and debt into the market with a a strong climate or ESG disclosure narrative behind it is only going to make companies access to capital easier. And I think poor disclosure, and I shouldn't say poor disclosure, a poor record or operational approach to these issues is going to make access to capital harder. I don't really think it's a binary uh, question, and I don't believe that in the U.S. you're going to see uh, uh, bank regulators, you know, try to use some sort of blunt instrument uh, that tries to redirect capital. I think that's unlikely to happen, but that if companies want the most, uh, the widest possible access to capital, what their environmental and climate uh, practices are and therefore disclosure is, I think, front and center. 
The 2021 shareholder proxy season held important lessons for oil and gas companies, with investors imposing new demands on targeted firms. What does all this mean for your company? Adam and the team's latest white paper gives you our top-line proxy season insights. Download it today at energythinks.com backslash papers. That's energythinks.com backslash papers. And now, back to the show. So we've been talking about disclosures uh, focused on emissions as they relate to climate. Um, I'm curious in your work at the uh, Values Reporting Foundation, if you're also talking a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're seeing a lot of investor uh, interest in how companies are benchmarking and looking to improve their culture and their their, uh, results in this area. Is this something that that you that you all are working on, and what do you see coming next? Yeah, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion are you know together critical uh, priorities for a very large group of institutional investors, and I think that that is very likely to continue. And those issues of of diversity, equity, and inclusion apply uh, to workforce composition compensation of the workforce, uh, and of course, diversity on the board. I think it's likely that the SEC is going to propose a human capital rule that will contain significant elements of DEI within it, a disclosure about workforce composition and compensation, both on a gender and a ethnic or racial axis. So uh, I expect this, I expect DEI generally to be an important issue to investors really for the indefinite future. It's hard to see how this is going to decline in significance. So, and this is related to companies' data collection and data governance. I think a lot of the questions around, you know, workforce diversity and compensation amongst groups, that's a lot for a lot of companies. They already have that information as a condition Mm -hmm. of their business. There are disclosures that are already required to go to the Department of Labor, so-called EEO-1. And so a lot of that data is already collected. But as companies are thinking through, you know, what the future of their data collection and governance looks like, looks like uh, DEI ought to be, you know, right at the top of the list. Because I think the like, Mm -hmm. even if the SEC doesn't propose a rule, it's clear that many, many institutional investors are going to continue to make this a priority. So, you know, either as a matter of private ordering in conversations with your investors or as a matter of uh, mandated SEC disclosure, making sure you've got uh, the information and it's reliable is uh, ought to be a priority for companies. Mm, That's a great point. Let's let's talk about uh, this as it relates to this core idea of what is material. So very recently you spoke at a U.S. Chamber of Commerce forum and you talked about how companies determine what is material and then that can inform their reporting. So for our audience that isn't ESG experts, if you'll talk a little bit, Granville, about what materiality means and and how how it informs the ESG process within a a specific organization, but but then get to what you think is important um, that companies know and improve upon and how they determine what's material. Sure. You know, materiality is a, is a, as a term, uh, and then as a, a concept that spawned many, many 
debates both within the legal community amongst companies and their investors it's a it's a it's very important and it actually bears also on the on the question you asked about scope 3 in the SEC so you know this the concept of materiality is really important the you know the definition uh, derives from a, a couple of Supreme Court cases, and the first one, TSC Industries, it was decided in the mid '70s, and the opinion was written, I believe, by uh, uh, Justice Marshall. He wrote that uh, quote: "A fact is material if there is a substantial likelihood that a reasonable shareholder would consider it important in deciding how to vote or in making uh, an investment decision." So, you know, that that is applied by the courts, you know, in a backward looking way. You'll have an insider trading case, you know, where the court's trying to decide, well, the information that the uh, the person had, you know, was it in fact material and it was and was it disclosed if not? And then, that, you know, is the, was the trade uh, legal if the information was in fact material, but non but not disclosed? Mm-hmm. You know, th- those are important legal issues for sure. You know, but at the board level. You know, do companies should companies and directors and senior management be getting themselves tied up into analytical knots trying to decide whether or not something is quote material? I think the answer is no. I think what mm-hmm. what management and boards ought to be asking themselves when considering what needs to be disclosed is a what's required, and of course that's what they do. But b what do investors want, and then figure and then connect the dots you need to connect in order to provide investors the relevant information that they need that's decision useful to them. And once you decide that, then you can grapple with this legal question of materiality, i.e., where do I put it? Do I put these disclosures in my 10K or do I put them in an ESG report outside of that? Now, there's a there are a variety of legal implications to including uh, some climate and other ESG information in an SEC filing, but I don't believe, I, I think you're letting the uh, the tail wag the dog a little bit if you approach the whole enterprise from the perspective of, you know, is this particular piece of information material? I think you need to decide what's, mm. who you're communicating to, i.e. investors. Well, they have certain types and kind and amounts of information that they want because they're telling you in many of their stewardship guidelines and proxy voting guidelines. So you can know, that's a knowable fact. What do my top 20 or top 40 shareholders want to know? And, and by and large, that, that that's a knowable empirical question. And then once you do that, then you can grapple with the question uh, of materiality. That's really interesting. And let me push on that and, and offer even an expanded perspective and get your, your thoughts on it. When we work with companies on their ESG strategy, helping them do their assessment of materiality, we go to a pretty broad group of stakeholders, um, including communities, key maybe local leaders in their operational areas, because so much of what's at risk for companies, there's, there's of course, they're meeting their investors' expectations, but there's also the operational risks of just being rejected in the communities within which you operate. And of course, I'm sitting here in Colorado, so you can imagine how that might play out. What do you think about this broader group of stakeholders determining materiality, Granville? And, and any other thoughts about that? You know, stakeholder groups, you know, concerned citizens, citizens who are concerned about the climate or the environment, folks considered about human rights, community relations uh, generally. You know, it is hard to overstate 
the increase in importance of, you know, what many people would call civil society in the long-term ability of a company to create value. You know, when I started my career, you know, you could just see the glimmerings of, of that kind of dynamic. And now, for a variety of reasons which we could talk about, stakeholders beyond investors are really something that companies and boards, senior management and boards uh, need to have in the front of their mind about how they are managing the business for the long term. Because short-term thinking with, with, with respect to managing those kinds of, of relationships and resources is, I don't think, going to stand shareholders in good stead. And it certainly will not address the concerns that a lot of these, these stakeholders have. You know, one plug I would make for uh, the SASB standards, you know, the SASB standards, which I would encourage companies to use in their disclosures, are intended to provide decision useful information to investors on uh, environmental and social risks. But the disclosures that are elicited by the SASB standards have a lot of value to stakeholders as well. And so as companies are thinking through what they need to disclose, they take a look at the SASB materiality map and look at their industries. That is a good place to start about the issues and risks that companies ought to be thinking about disclosing. In effect, what the SASB standards are focused on are the impacts of the outside world on the inner workings of the company and its ability to generate value. Other frameworks like the GRI, formerly the uh, Global Reporting mm-hmm. Initiative, that, the GRI is more focused on the impacts of the company on the outside world, on the environment and society. But there is meaningful overlap between the two. And so, you know, companies, senior management and boards always have to have in their mind who is it that we're communicating to and why? And once you make those, once you understand that, it's going to be a lot easier and simpler and clarifying to uh, figure out what framework should I use to help me disclose whatever information I need to in order to address the concerns of either my investors or uh, broader stakeholders. That's really useful thinking about the the audience um, as as we're setting strategy. And um, I couldn't agree more that the paradigm has shifted where these, we call them social risks, as you articulated at the expectations of civil society, these are now existentially important to how companies are going to be successful in the long term. So I, I really appreciate that you brought that out. Okay, for our last couple of questions, Grandpa, I'm going to pivot to talking about you. I've known you for a long time. Um, I've known you to be ahead of your time, which is why I wanted to talk to you today so you could foreshadow for us what you think is coming next. And you you um, worked in banking. Now you work um, in the uh, NGO space. What are the core values that drive you to do this work? What do you return to as you face the challenges that we all, all have in, in doing this work together? Well, at the risk of being somewhat downcast, I don't know if this is a value, but I have always enjoyed thinking about the long term, about the future. And, you know, finance can have very short term time horizons, um, but also much longer ones. And I always enjoyed that about about my roles in the banking industry. You know, prior to that, I'd worked in in politics and 
so much of politics is, is similar to finance in, in that way. It can be extremely short term, but thinking about the long term is essential to being an effective and long lived <laughs> politician or, or statesman. And so, you know, I've always enjoyed that. You know, sustainability is very similar. And what I meant by being downcast is that many of the sustainability trends that we are looking at, be they climate, the health of the marine environment, the presence of, of microplastics, a whole variety of issues that you could focus in on if you, if you wanted to zero in on something. Many of these trends are increasingly stark. And, um, and, and one of the things that, and, I, and they're increasingly relevant to investors. And so I can't say that, you know, I, I wanted to, to make my career in the intersection of, on the one hand, declining trends, but on the other, the need for the investor community to, to better understand and risk manage uh, negative externalities. But that is, in fact, what has happened. And, uh, you know, I, I really enjoy my job day to day. You know, the Value Reporting Foundation is really uh, at the center of many of the discussions and debates around sustainability. We provide frameworks that are increasingly relied on to provide important decision, not just decision useful, but information that is used by investors to make decisions, how to vote and other investment decisions. And so it's a privilege to be here at this point you know, the, the VRF's been around for 10 years. I've only been here for about eight months now. And, and clearly the most relevant and impactful years of the Value Reporting Foundation are still in front of it, um, which brings me back to the somewhat sobering trends that, that we look at because it's evident that certain kinds of resource constraints and the ability to absorb environmental impacts as, as those decline, the ability to absorb them that uh, that were more and more relevant. So, you know, it's it's a uh, it's been an interesting it's it's been an interesting career. I, I grew up around some of these issues, and uh, you know, I never really thought that I'd work in them. You know, at this point in my mm. career, here we are. It's interesting because although you characterize that as potentially downcast, the rose-colored glass view that I have of it is that you're at such a relevant lever to accelerate positive change with the work you're doing right now. So I'm delighted that you're sitting in the seat that you are. Well, I guess but I want to let, let, let me build on yeah. one thing. And that is, you know, over the course of my career, I have talked to hundreds and hundreds of companies and in, across industries, mainly in the United States. And one thing that you, one thing that is extremely hopeful is that the people who most of the people who work in operating companies are aggressive, motivated, and effective, and innovative. And uh, so many of the solutions that, that we need, we already have. And if we can get folks in the, in the public company and private company communities focused on minimizing some of these impacts, we will be successful. I mean, you look at the amount of wealth that the American economy has generated, and it's mind-boggling. And it is because fundamentally, of the people who make up our companies. And so we definitely have the capacity to address a lot of these issues. And so in that sense, I am very, very hopeful. And the last thing I'd say is there is a whole bunch of money to be made in, in solving a bunch of these problems. 
I love that. In fact, I think that's the note we should end on because it is so encouraging. So Granville, thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Things podcast today. It's just been a delight to have this conversation with you. Tisha, uh, it was my pleasure. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Granville for taking the time to share his insights with us. And you know what was a game-changing insight for me? It was uh, this idea that you can wrap up all this ESG and SEC disclosure expectations in this one concept that civil society has new expectations of corporations and how we engage. And it's very exciting to think about putting the private sector in one of the important driver's seats to leading into a better energy future. So I'd like to know what you uh, thought was game changing. So please check out our website, energythinks.com backslash podcast and let uh, let me know what you thought. If you like what you're hearing, take a moment and rate the podcast and also pass it along to two of your colleagues. I would like to thank uh, the team at Adam and Teen, Don Rubio, Lindsay Gage, now Lindsay Slaughter, and Michael Tanner for making the Energy Thinks podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, And like I do every time, I wish you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.